Lost and Rewound, Radio Free Brooklyn. Time to get embarrassed with us. This is Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn, and my name is Alon. I'm Jimmy. You've been, you've been all right, dude? Um, you good? I was under the weather. Yes. But I've returned. You've returned. I've Providence. returned. I was in England last week, so thank you to all of our listeners for your patience. We want to remind you that all that you're hearing on Radio Free Brooklyn is free because you. Because of you. <laughs> it's free because you. Because you. It's free because of listeners like you. Go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash pledge and pledge any amount of dollars that you wish to keep us uh, alive and kicking with the financial ease that we need in this era of artistic volatility. Well, yeah, because the amount of money going towards the arts nowadays is... <laughs> what amount is that? Exactly. <laughs> I wanted, that was a non-definitive amount of Yes, if money. we had to go and, like, if you were going to get someone that was going to translate this into another language, yes. if, if ever the show got any sort of popularity and traction, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll figure out, we'll become the ABBA of these guys, yes. and they were trying to, no, they wouldn't, no. You can be a sponsor, and if you'd like to, you could donate a <laughs> whatever amount. That was, like, more of an evil maniacal laugh there <laughs> you were like uh you know you were you're plotting <laughs> radiofreebrooklyn.org slash l-a-r to sponsor us directly yeah that's it that's that that's the pitch and now let's get on with this show you may be familiar with our guest this week he is the owner and operator of Underground Press, celebrating nearly 20 years of business in the screen printing industry. But you may also know him as being omnipresent in the world of music, where for nine years, Tommy Rockstar played bass for the New York-based punk band Latex Generation. You could also hear him every Friday night at 8 p.m. from Live from the Barrage at RadioNope.com. We're excited to welcome to Lost and Rewound, the one, the only, Tommy Rockstar. Hey, how's it going, guys? Welcome aboard. First of all, I should note that I've known you for a long time, but I feel like there's so much that I did not know because I met you at the very tail end of clearly what was the... Correct. End of a generation. <laughs> the end of a generation. <laughs> so, from those who don't know, Latex Generation was based out of New York. Out of Long Island, Manhattan, where exactly? Uh, Long Island, Long Island. And that's where you were raised? Yes. Well, so I was born in New York City in 1975, and then we were there until about 1980, and then my family suburbanized, and we spent the rest of our lives in Long Island before I eventually moved to Williamsburg about 10 years ago. He really lived there. You know, I can tell you. He said Long Island. Long Island. <laughs> That's the that, if you if you lived in Long Island, you say Long Island. On a bad day, you'll you'll hear me say Wrong Island, and on a drunk day, I'll say Strong Island. But Strong <laughs> Island, dude. JVC Force. I remember as a as a kid, my father writing down on a piece of paper to like show somebody the right way to say it. He goes, "Look, it's like this," because my father was born out there. He's like, "It's L O N space G U Y L A N D Long Island." Sounds about right. What was the impetus for the latex, or just latex generation? There is no the, just sure. latex generation. Yeah, well, actually, the, the name comes from kind of an epiphany I had. I came up with a name in the late 80s, early 90s, when the AIDS epidemic was really a big thing in the news cycle. 
And, you know, we were reading facts that we thought by, you know, the year 2000 that, you know, something like a third of the population would be infected with AIDS. And as we all know, that got kind of nipped in the bud, thank God. But that's kind of where it started because when we were younger, it's like we fed down our throats, you know. So we decided to, to dub the band Latex Generation for a generation that had brand new, uh, you know, concerns and challenges in being sexually oriented, you know. That is so much deeper. Ninety-five <laughs> percent 90, of band names. I was just in a moment. I was just like, "Yeah, dude." Well, it's a, it's an yeah. awful band name when you look back at it. We're, we're you know, it's something well, that an eighteen-year-old would come up with. At the so, same time, you know, you could have it could have been nineteen ninety-four, and you're like, "Yo, we're gonna make a band Y two K." Yeah, exactly. Y two K and the Killers. Like, and people would have been like, "What are you talking about?" I can't tell you, you how know? many times people have asked me if we were some sort of German techno band because it sounded like some something like out of Germany or something. You know? When bookers were reaching out to you for shows was that assumption brought to your attention and then you're like wait who's on the bill we're, we're, we're a punk band exactly that happened a lot where we got misbilled a lot you know because we started in 19 was it 1990 1990 and uh, the first few years were kind of like thrown out the window because we were just like kind of jammed together then we started getting serious we put our first single out in 1993 on mother box records they also put out bands like sleeposaurus who later became radio four Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, we put a second single out with a guy named Christian McKnight, who now works at Live Nation. He's a big promoter in Long mm-hmm. Island. That was called the I Kill the President, 7-inch. And then in 1995, um, kind of at the height of the Green Day scene, you know, there was a lot of scenes bubbling up. It was a big hardcore scene in Long Island. And to be honest, we kind of got shunned by those dudes because we were kind of jokey punk rock. We were more in the vein of like the Bouncing Souls or Lifetime or, you know, West End. They're, they're very serious. Well... <laughs> Or they, they were a lot more yeah, so. Yeah, the, the hardcore guys were for sure. So they yeah. kind of shunned us. It forced us to go more west. So we started playing with the, the Souls in Jersey and Weston in Pennsylvania. We actually ended up playing in Pennsylvania more than we ever did in Long Island because their crowds were more receptive. I've, I used to go to hardcore shows as a kid. For one, they took it so seriously. It was life. And then I remember sure. there was a guy at the show that everybody called Old Man. He was <laughs> yes, 20, you've he, talked about this he guy. He was 27. <laughs> <laughs> and he was this little dude. And then he was just talking about how the shows were just, it was just awful when I was going to the shows. Because in his days, you used to tuck razor blades in your shoes and do spin kicks into the, into the pit. Oh, yeah, I know that. You yeah. know, and I, I remember, you know, we would come out with black eyes and busted lips Oof. and like war wounds, like, yeah, we did it, you know, but he was just like, oh, you guys, yo, you don't know right. nothing. And I was just like, why, why would you, why would you actively search that out? Of course. You know? Were you ever that old man? <laughs> yeah, I'm older than that now. I'm 41. So. <laughs> sure, no, but I mean, in terms of even um, when you would go to see shows, did you, did it, did you feel kind of like out of place a little bit, or were you always very uh, ingrained in the scene, so you were always feeling welcome? Yeah, it's the latter. I was always, always ingrained in the scene, and you know, I would always meet people and connect, and I would brown nose and connect, and all the stuff, and eventually, like, that actually paid off, because we kind of took that and parlayed that, I, I parlayed that into kind of the management role of the band, where I would help book, you know? Before... The internet, before GPS, before cell phones, we used to book our tours through an appendix from Maximum Rock and Roll. They had something called Book Your Own Life. Do you yeah. guys remember that? I don't, but you said appendix, and that's a word that is not thrown around. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of like the roller decks and just like having all these different contacts well, on your person. Exactly. I remember that in the old days, when you wanted to do almost anything, half of it you felt like you were a detective. Yes. Oh. You had to search out places <laughs> with the info. So it was like that until Maximum Rock and Roll stepped in. In, in the mid-90s, they, they created this like volume called Book Your... It's actually called Book Your Own Fucking Life. And in it was a collection of like 
postcards that people would send into their San Francisco offices, and then they would publish them state by state. So let's say you were traveling through Ohio and you needed like a laundromat. You know, you would look up, you know, a certain venue. Or if you wanted a vegan burrito place in Minnesota, you would go there. But mostly it was for promoters and bands to kind of connect. And it was a total DIY guide. And it really made us like because without it we wouldn't have been able to do a national tour which is what we did in 1996 with a little tiny school bus that we had bought from our high school excellent for a hundred dollars because nowadays you think about it and social media once you have a reach totally it, different it's world. easy mm-hmm. you can just go out and i mean you can you can find the venues you can literally just go on google maps and yeah. look at the area you're going to yeah. and be like look at all the venues yep. let me call them up there's their numbers in the old days, exactly, like yeah. to, to get that reach. And it's part of a scene, you know, because there was a scene going on that like people would help each other out. But this was literally either mailing to a P.O. box or calling someone up on their landline and asking for help. And we would do that all the time. And we'd help bands traveling through our air all the time. Well, that's one thing I remember when I was younger was that uh, the, a lot of the bands that would come into town, um, you know, they would end up staying with sure. other bands around. They didn't stay at hostels and, and, and hotels and things like that. Mm-hmm. They just stayed with the other bands on their couches. Countless, countless floors that we've stayed on. I can't, I can't even begin to fathom yeah. how many. And I remember that, well, there's one time I was going to see a band and, um, I mean, they had a bunch of albums out and they were, they were playing at the knitting factory in the city and it was, and I was like so amped to see him and I see my buddy there and he was, he was on older was that than I was. Uh, it was, uh, Kailessa. Mm-hmm. And my and my buddy was on there, and he was like walking past the line, going up. And I was like, "Hey, man, I, I don't know you like this band." And he was like, "Oh yeah, my buddies called me up. They were coming into town and needed a place to crash. They're like, come out and see our show, man." So I'm, I'm going to see the show. And he and I was like, "Oh, so they're kind of let's crash with you." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you know." That's funny, punk scene, man. One time, we, we I don't know if you guys know the band Less Than Jake. Of course, of course. They, they uh, old friends of ours. They we put them up one time in my parents' house, and they, they, they it was like this massive bus that came like rolling down on my dead end cul-de-sac driveway with with like a trailer connected with merch connected to it. It was the funniest so thing bizarre. you've ever seen. Yeah. It's so weird. On the way over here, like literally not fifteen minutes ago, in my mind, I was like, I wonder what Less Than Jake is doing right <laughs> now. <laughs> that's that's something that many ska punk fans of the nineties are thinking. They're still going. So I'm curious, though, in like, you know, having peers in the music scene that you're inspired by, because you are somebody who overtook a managerial role, who were your influences in the business side of things? Sure, sure. Well, actually, it's a, it's a great question because no one's ever actually asked me that. And, <laughs> and, but it's a good one. It's really a good question. First of all, everything in punk is DIY when it starts out, just by nature. So you start to realize that there's something at the end of the road. There's a reward there for you, but you have to kind of go for it. And so I started hustling out of the pure necessity to kind of succeed for the band. You know, we all did in our different ways, you know, like for example, Joe Latex was a way better songwriter and a singer and a lyricist and all that things I couldn't do, but I just loved to, to kind of promote and grow like a DIY project. So naturally that would just kind of come out. But then I started to like become friends with bands. Like, like I had mentioned before, Weston bouncing souls. And they all started to, I noticed they had management, you know, and, and agents helping them out. You know, people like Randy Nichols or this girl, Sandy, that would book Weston or even Kate from the bouncing souls. They even, they wrote a song about her called Kate is great. This is like the, the mom of the band where she's taking care of them. And we never really had that. So I started to realize that we have to do that ourselves. So it taught me not only to, take that role but also learn how to talk to those people and i started to realize things like you know they needed certain things like it was actually Vinny from less than jake who once gave me a great lesson we were touring together in australia for the warp tour and he told me that you can't just go and ask for things as an opening band you have to offer things up you know like you have to bring something to the table Mm -hmm. in return to get something you know sure 
And so these were valuable lessons for my kind of peers and, and you know, some people that I took influence from. I think then when you're a musician especially, you're sort of diving into like the void. You, mm-hmm. you almost have no idea where it's going to take you, but you're going in a completely creative direction. Um, and that's really scary, I yeah. think. The thing that, that pulls you through is the passion for what you're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. And you're, I think you're exactly right that having someone almost like a spirit guide, a, a wise figure to, to lead you on that yes. path is, yes. is, is integral. And it's funny because the, the thing that I thought about, we were joking before you walked in. We were just, just goofing off. And we were talking about Ninja Turtles. And I was <laughs> saying how an, and Ninja Turtles have been around now for 30 years mm-hmm. plus. And it's I have the, the first uh, issue from Eastman Lake. I mean, yeah. everybody loves it. Yeah. Universally. I've not met a person who doesn't like Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Not even a person that says that they're like, oh, they're okay. Like, everybody likes them. Sure. Um, and they haven't really changed it. Over all these years, it's still the four turtles. And then you got Master Splinter. And I was just thinking about this idea that, like, having this grounded force that doesn't necessarily contribute in the same way that everyone else does, but is there to push you and guide you. And, and without that, you know, and them, and, and again, it's, it's the idea that they're, they're doing something that they don't know, but it's a, they have a passion for it. Sure, they're trying sure. to like fight crime, you and, know? So, and I, there were, there were elders in the scene, you know, there's a guy out in Pennsylvania, you mentioned old guys, a guy named Frank Foe, you know, he used to hang with the dudes from FOD. That's like, those guys were around way oh, before. Wow. That's and, a name I haven't heard in a while. See, there you go. You know, and they used to hang with the dead milkman and all that. This guy, Frank, you know, he put out a lot of bands coming out. You know, he he took care of us and took us in. He put Weston's records out. There there were some elders who stuck in the scene, um, and that's just something to just made me really happy and, and proud to know that people would just kind of help the, the youngins, you know, kind of make their way up. And there are just so many different people from coast to coast. And that was the greatest thing about touring is that you made so many friends, and it goes beyond contacts. It's a true relationships. And some of these people I, I still talk to today, you know, 20 years later. It's created in the community. Mm-hmm. Rewinding a little bit uh, to your musical roots, uh, more importantly, uh, is the fact that because you were playing at such a young age, when did you first pick up an instrument? Oh, man. Jeez, I would say like 12 years old. And was that, do you have an older sibling or were your parents? Uh, uh, I'm the oldest. Uh, what happened was my cousin, Paul, Paulie Latex, we call him, he's about a year older than me. And so he started taking guitar and his neighbor, uh, Mike Hobbs, he started p- taking guitar drum lessons and the two of them took lessons from the same guy this old guy named george peterson and so they were kind of like jokingly at age 13 be like dude we, we need to fill the gap why don't you learn the bass because you'll complete the circle and so i did that and i took piano at first so piano i kind of gave me an understanding of how the bass would work learn the basic notes and then from there bass kind of was pretty simple but i, I kind of played the bass more like a, a guitar and it, it just kind of came easy and then from there from 1990 till about 92 we were kind of learning our instruments collectively learning how to write songs, putting it together. And then uh, a, a guy named Joe Latex came over from a, another band. He was in a band called Old Motor Parkway, and he was like the, the missing link, you know, because he started to to grab the vocals and, and started singing. And, and as far as influences go, you know, we were first, you know, we're, I'm a big hair metal guy. You know, I was listening to stuff like Poison, Def Leppard, and then a lot of people know me as one of the world's biggest Guns N' Roses fans. I'm very familiar with that. Seems, <laughs> for, for those who are uh, keeping track at home on the Twitters uh, and Facebooks, you are adamant about your Guns N' Roses fandom. Yeah, and I mean, it's a huge thing. We can go into it now or I can go into it later. It's like, yeah. <laughs> well, wait, so in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, hair metal really hadn't gotten too bad. It was still kind of like more glam back in those Correct. days. Correct. And, and we were so used to like these glammy bands and it was fun and it was just a different thing. But eventually, you know, you started to see harder bands like Molly Crew, well, first Van Halen, then Molly Crew. You know, I mean, Sabbath was always there from that period. You know, I was really into Def Leppard. And then all of a sudden I uh, was cutting school one day and the skater girl back in junior high, she uh, she stopped me. She said, what are you doing? I said, cutting school. What's it to you? And she said, <laughs> oh, I have a cassette. 
oh, okay. She's like, do you have a Walkman? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, here, take this Maxell copy of this tape and tell me what you think. And I just walked home, like, you know, middle of a school day, listening to a dubbed copy of Appetite for Destruction. And I literally walked, I don't know, three blocks before I just stopped and froze and was like, holy shit, this is the greatest music I've ever heard. And then 24 hours later, my room was covered in posters and I was playing air guitar. And, <laughs> and since then, I think I've seen the band about, I don't know, 30 or 40 times. Yeah, I've seen them tw- 11 times on this recent reunion tour, including in Italy and L.A. and Chicago. And You might have been at the, the show that Metallica played with them at Jones Beach. some Or Jones Beach or? Giant Stadium. Giant Stadium, thank you, in the early 90s. With Faith No More opening up. Yes, uh-huh. I was. <laughs> See, does that, I wonder, does that still happen with kids and like... Good question. I don't know. You know, you know, do they hear something? Because even if they do, if they're just like, where they're just like, oh my God, I heard that hotline bling. We all have epiphanies, I think. I would venture to say it does. Look at um, an artist like uh, Lady Gaga. Uh, I, w- I could totally see like her little monsters totally freaking out first time hearing something like a poker face or, along those lines. May- you know, maybe you're not seeing it so much with like huge rock bands per se. Yeah. But I guarantee it happens. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Music, musical taste has changed, mm. but the influence of music hasn't. But maybe it happens to rock bands. I hope it does. Oh, well, I, 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 that's well, that's 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 what it is. I hope it I happens hope. in pop music, and rock right. just happens to be in that sub forum of pop music. Sure. Too, where I had a time when I was in college, when I was already a big rock fan, when I heard a, a couple bands, and I was just like, "No way!" And like, it was just like I didn't. Yeah, you don't know what to do. All of a sudden, you're just like, "Ah, my whole yeah. my whole thing has changed." At eight year age has a lot to do with it. Remember, again, I was thirteen or something like that, fourteen. So. It was like a really big deal. But now, for me now, Guns N' Roses is a little more nostalgic. But Sure. But back then, it was in the moment. But then that started to dissipate when underground music came in. So now, all of a sudden, we start getting into the Ramones and the Dead Milkmen. And my cousin Paul was a big influence showing me that music. Then Joe Latex would show me stuff like uh, Descendants and No Effects, and that I really took to. And then we started to go to a local club in Long Island called The Angle, and this was a small dance club where it originally started as like kind of an industrial dance night. We'd listen to like Front 242 and Nine Inch Nails. And sure, sure, We'd sure. all dance kind of gothy. Skinheads would show up, all sorts of people. Ugh. There was a guy named Artie Philly who now goes by the name Artie White. He was a big promoter and he started doing shows there. And he started bringing bands in like a bunch of different promoters. But uh, like a veil played there. And then I'll never forget the first time he brought the Bouncing Souls and – all of a sudden, Joe and I were at the show, and we're like, wow, underground music. Like, this is underground music. This is what it's all about. And so from there, that's really where we were like, fuck the hair metal. You know, fuck the big name bands. Like, we're all about the underground. We want to do this. And that's where Latex Generation really started. Underground Press, was this built out of the same sort of um, uh, ethos of creating sort of a bond with underground, with the underground scene? And what was, in fact, the uh, reason that you started doing this? Absolutely. And, you know, Tether's right there with all this. So you start a band, you get it going, uh, you put out some singles, and then all, you start doing some touring. All re- the merch. All the merch, that, you know, and you, re- you tour regionally, and you start to realize you need to promote yourself, right? So... First, it starts at Kinko's. You start going to Kinko's back then. This is before anyone had personal computers. Des- Wait, Kinko, how long has Kinko's been around for? Because I know that they were existing before FedEx bought them, but I'm definitely curious as to what the... Kinko's has been around a while. Isn't Kinko's one of those brands where they invented um, something like 
uh, some some term that is now universally used, but it's a it's a Kinko's you, term. You, you mean like um, like the Xerox or public something like internet? That? <laughs> well, like Kleenex. Kleenex right, is a brand, mean. but people say Kleenex because they mean tissue. Right, right to get it copied. Right. That's weird. Yeah, well, I know that there's something like that. Kinko's actually also came from a DIY scene, believe it or not, where a guy who looked like a redheaded clown whose nickname was Kinko in college. <laughs> what? Yes, he realized in the dorms that people were like running all across town to get their theses and all the shit to be copied and so he bought a copier and he started running a copy shop out of his dorm dude i mean what? when you say that though to me i just see ah i'm kinko <laughs> the sexually perverse clown <laughs> <laughs> no it's true this i don't know his real name you look it up on wikipedia but kinko. mr kinko uh started doing this in the diy scene you know and all of a sudden people started coming to him and then he branched out and just opened a little shop and then that's where you got this big chain before fedex bought them but before fedex bought them this is where, in the early 90s, all us punks would go to make band flyers. And you started to realize that if you went behind the counter and asked them for um, really cheap sticker paper, 8.5 by 11, you could jam it into the machine, even though they'd yell at you if you did it, and, and then do a bunch of ups, like you know 10 up, 8 up, d- black and white designs, yeah. and there's your first inkling of a sticker. I will never forget like going to Kinko's and you would go out to have a smoke or whatever by the garbage can, and that garbage can in this really nice part of Long Island would be covered with these unremovable stickers from all these hardcore bands and punk bands because that's what people would do. they just make them and go right to the garbage can and put them out and then eventually Kinko's banned sticker making because of that. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So I bring that up because that's where we first made like the covers to our albums and you know, you're first getting into print and design. I remember this album, which we'll talk about later, was actually designed by cell animation. So we took transparency sheets and painted them with ink. Cell shading, baby. Cell shading, exactly. And then made a composite. Is, is great. It's still a beautiful, beautiful art form, man. Yeah, because this was all before computers. So anyway, to answer your question, part of that is is merchandising. And in addition to records and flyers and record covers, you need things like T-shirts. So my cousin, the singer of the band, Paul Atex, went to UMass, and he came back taking a screen printing course. And so he was the one who taught it to me in about 1995. And we would use things like my dad's picture frames and my mom's silk curtains and started making crude prints and they were awful and we didn't know what we were doing with like simple speedball kits from pearl paint which again i don't even think exists anymore we made simple one color prints but we were fascinated with the results and as the band went on for different roles i really stuck to it and then you can imagine we were doing like coastal circuit tours and we would do a small run i mean i'm friends with the guys from a place the berry strangers you know that band i'm not familiar yeah, they're, they're a great band right now out of Brooklyn. They, they are really big. They play Terminal 5 all the time, and they still, in their loft, will do exactly what we did 20 years ago, you know, because they, they have full control of well, their merch. There's nothing to say that you should be abandoning the least expensive route to creating your product. Well, because so. there's no money there, because everyone's vying for fame and fortune, and it's just not going to happen. So basically, in a nutshell, we started doing that, and then I bought my first printing press, which is a simple four-color one station, and I put it in my parents' basement where we used to rehearse, and that became kind of a band studio and a little print shop. And that's where the, the name Underground Press comes from, because it was literally Underground Press. Tell us a little bit about your parents' relationship with you and the music that you play. Uh, were they overall pretty supportive over time, considering how devoted you were to this? Sure, that's a great question. My parents, neither one of them are musical, so they were both baffled that I took to music, you know? What, what were they expecting? They, uh, they weren't really expecting much. You that's... played piano. Yeah, and they, they were like, cool, every kid plays piano, but they, when they started to realize the band was a thing and we started touring around the country and then got signed, they were like, that's so funny that 
you know, there's no music in our family bloodline. They're immigrants from Eastern Europe, you know, so for them, a DIY punk scene and a band touring around, you know, it was just baffling to them. My parents are from the Czech Republic, and they taught me speaking Czech, so actually Czech is my first language, so I can speak it, but that's probably why I stammer on my words so much, because I have to go between languages. Rockstar is clearly not your first, your original <laughs> last name. No, it's not. How long have you been Tommy Rockstar as opposed to your government name? Sure. Well, that started at the same time as the band started. Yes. So probably around 13, 14 around that age and i've only been known by that name in the world because um that's just how people know me and that's what i go by um the reason branding yeah exactly (laughs) well it just we were big fans of the bands the ramones yes and we all kind of thought it was funny how everybody was johnny ramone joey ramone and so everybody started calling themselves paulie latex joey latex but for me tommy latex didn't really work and i was a really big glam ham as you say and i was into these hair metal bands so somehow that just that name came up and it stuck and everyone just thought it fit and here we are I, I give it up to you man you know there's many many an actor many a musician many a, a public figure that can't seem to separate their original name with the name that they adopt out in the world i mean i don't think i could ever get away with being anybody else but alan danziger because it's you such could a be, you could be e3 <laughs> fuck you dude <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny is when you walked in you and then you was like hey it's tommy rockstar there wasn't a single moment where i was just like no, he's not. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, it's totally time. Yeah, it works, right? You know, and it's kind of a douchey thing to call yourself a rock star, but it's it, this is like before the whole rock star energy drink and all this like, you know, pop stars calling themselves rock star. Authenticity. It, it started there, you know, so let's just say that. But yeah. now, now it's funny you mentioned it because I just got engaged last month, right? Congratulations. Thank you. Is she going to be Miss Rockstar? Well, that's what the conversation <laughs> was. We were just drunkenly, my, so check this out, my kid's sister got married this weekend, right? Congrats. So congrats to her. And uh, we were having a good time and of course my girl, my fiance, we we were coming home a little drunk and we were talking about taking the name and she's like you know should i take the name and i said no you should not take the name it's a silly name you know no. and, but so i'm totally fine if she keeps her real name. what about your kids well see it's funny you say that so uh joe latex who came up for the wedding he's a great photographer now i really got to plug him in his site jwn photo he's a really world-renowned photographer he took photos of my sister's wedding and he too got drunk and was telling me like hey man did you know that when you apply for a wedding license, you have that opportunity right there to legally change your name as well, not just the, the bride? And so he's like, you should change it to Rockstar, like permanently. And it got me thinking, like, do I really want to do that? And I just can't. But the moment is the moment is fast approaching for you to make that decision, no, right? I got about a year, so we'll, well see. Well, if you, I mean, the naming possibilities with your kids being named Rockstar? I don't know. I think I might give them my, my real surname and then have them choose if they want to go with it, you know, but... Dude, but if they get your real surname, then then who are they? Really? <laughs> Even your children? Like, you'd be like yeah, is this I know, kid? Is this? I know. You'd be like, yeah, what, what name is that? Maybe we'll just pick a whole other name, I like Miller any... or something like that. And just go. Or for maybe it. you could just give, you could just give them the wife's name, too. <laughs> yeah. Wait, we, we have to take uh, a break. We, when, we, when we come back, we have to go and dig into this tape right here. I'm looking at this <laughs> tape. story. Ah, I'm so excited. More with Tommy Rockstar when we come back. This is Lost and Rewound. Radio Free Brooklyn. Well, moving on up. Yeah. 
case you are just joining us, our guest this week for Lost and Rewound is world-renowned Tommy Rockstar joining us here in the studio, and he has a tape that he brought with him today. Uh, please, if you don't mind, could you divulge the story of how you found this tape after how many years? Sure, um, after, geez, 20 years. Well, did you you had ha- obviously held on to it for some period of time before you lost it, I guess? No, I never I never had possession of this. I never you even... never possessed this tape of your band? I'll give you one more. I never knew that tapes were made of this release. Right? Come again? <laughs> All right, let, 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 sorry. <laughs> I, I, you don't see what I just, ha- just happened here in the studio, but I literally, like, my hat... The equivalent of a hat flip, I had to turn the mic down because my eyes went like boy. Yeah. He did a he did a he did a radio double take. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the whole story. So check this out. So by nineteen ninety five we start playing around and then uh we were trying to get signed. So there was a label that, that came to from uh New Zealand uh to America. They're called One Foot Records. And One Foot Records was a subsidiary of a classical music distributor called Naxos, N A X O S. And that's a massive international distributorship of classical music well the the millionaire ceo of that company had a son and that dude's name was rick and rick came to america to nashville specifically to go to university and there at the height of the punk scene he was like dad i want to start a punk label throw me a couple mil and so what happened was he started this label called one foot records as in like he's on his own foot to do it i had heard about this kid in the scene and he had signed a couple bands from the area somehow i got in touch with the dudes at one foot records and sent them our tape and they liked it and believe it or not they signed us and they signed us in 1995 96 um to a two album deal and gave us this money to record and to tour with and support and here we are like whatever 18 19 years old fresh out of high school with our jaws dropping be like we just got like a record deal this is crazy and so this album that we're speaking of is the first album the debut album from latex generation on one foot records that was released in 1996 but for all we know it was released on cd and it was released on vinyl and that's what we took out with us on the road that's what we sold that's what would show up in record shops in the 99 cent bin that's that's what there was, and then we went on to the band went through a whole evolution, and our second album was called Boys Rock, and that was a kind of a seminal departure from what we were doing before. This is where we started getting influence with bands like um, The Promise Ring and Super Chunk and Arches of Loaf. So it's a little more indie direction, sure. And you'll hear the two albums are vastly different, whereas this was a culmination of our me and my cousin, his neighbor, on all the pop punk stuff we were goofing on, you know. So. That album, only Boys Rock, only had CD. It never had even vinyl. So now here I am, flash forward 20 years later. The band ends in 1999. I start Underground Press formally in 99, doing all punk bands, and now it's all Heineken and Nike and Google, Twitter, and 20-year growth in the business, but directly connected to the band scene. I don't play anymore. I miss it. I really do. But, you know, it's part of my legacy, and it made me who I am. So from time to time on things like Instagram and Facebook, people will tag me in latex generation related things. For example, an old flyer or, or maybe our first record. Well, it just so happens that Joe latex, the singer of the band tagged me in a post from a complete stranger on the other side of the world, somewhere in the Philippines who posted a picture for sale in his Filipino record shop of the latex generation 360 debut album on cassette. And it blew my mind because they never told us that cassettes were ever made. They only told you CDs. Yeah, that's all they ever did. Right. They never do like seven inch, or they did 
Well, we had seven inches with like indie record promoters, you sure. know, record labels. But, but they never told you it was a cassette. Nope, and I didn't even know it existed. And so, of course, I have to own this because it's mine. Yes. So I went in like a, like kind of a dope and and wrote this and told him that I was a big fan and I, ne- I needed to purchase this record. And he was like, "Oh, it's it would be too expensive to send it to you in New York. It's it would be something like eleven dollars in total with shipping and the cost of the three dollar tape." And I was like, "I think I can swing eleven bucks, dude." And he's like, but you must send it in cash. And I'm like, that's not a problem because what do I have to lose? It's like, you know, things in the U.S. are not as bad as you may have heard. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, that w- that's an interesting point you make, Jimmy, because when you heard this for the first time, I've, ass- I've assumed you've heard this. I have not. How do you feel going into this? <laughs> we are not proud of this record because... You are not. We're, not. we're proud of the body of work, but we're not proud of the recording. The reason why... I see. Yeah, it was recorded in 1996 at a place called... ESR Studios in Port Washington by a guy named Steve Mayer. Steve was a great guy, big fat dude, older guy, and he was all about like ADATs and digital. And um, even though we had a nice big recording budget, we, for a lot of different reasons, rushed through the recording process that we took too long with the drums and not enough with the bass and the vocals weren't done the right. And so we walked out with a product that we weren't happy with, but there were deadlines involved, so we cranked it out. So the songwriting is there, the recording is not. Some of your listeners might understand what I'm saying because our next album was recorded way better. We went to Tracks East, where bands like Lifetime and Bouncing Souls recorded sure. in Jersey. So I'm proud of the band. I'm proud of what the songs we wrote for 18-year-olds. And uh, <laughs> But the recording, eh, we'll see. But I have not ever played this cassette. This, this is exciting. Is this, the, this is the first case of a guest with the recording that they didn't know existed before, right? I think this might be. <laughs> and They're lost and rewound first. Uh, yeah, Exclu- it's lost and rewound. Exact throwing exclusives left and right here. Oh, yeah. uh, um, what's the name of the track we're going to be listening to? I guess the first track on our new album is uh, Central America. Okay, yeah. lost and rewound. Here we go.
All right. So that was uh, yeah, Central America. <laughs> what was the relevance with calling it Central America, my friend? Oh, man. Well, so when you're in a punk band, you, you don't have any money. Everybody knows this. Get you out of here. <laughs> so what we would do is we all worked at different jobs, and uh, most of us worked at this pizzeria called Fran Tony's out in Long Island, which is still, still there. Awesome. That's yeah, good to know. Good people over there. And so pizzerias, I'll, I'll in, them, pizzerias in New York, they, they stick around. <laughs> I'll let them know. Hey, you remember Tommy that doing that uh, punk rock back oh, in the day? They definitely do. They still to this day bust my chops about it. Amazing. P- pizza rock, dude. Pizza rock. <laughs> so they, they, uh, they, they also knew me as Tommy Rockstar. And what they would do is they threw us in the pizza vans, these branded vans and deliver and, and all a bunch of stories with that. But um, we all worked there. And, and we noticed that um, these dudes in the back, man, these, these Spanish dudes who lived in like Honduras and all different parts of Central America, they, they would work so hard, man. They would work like you know, 18, 16-hour days and shit and make humble money you know, to American standards and send it back to their family. They, they lived in squalor in Hempstead, and they would just send most of their money back to their families they haven't seen in years. And we thought that was really remarkable. And so, you know... Yeah, I'll stop and say we didn't know what punk was. We were just kind of following a trend and a scene, and then we realized we kind of belonged in it. But my cousin, that, those lyrics are about identifying with what is punk. And he was like, you know what? Fuck your your bumper stickers and your maximum rock and roll. I think punk rock is, is what those dudes do. And so that song is about Franco and Oscar and Omar and Pedro sending their money home to Central America. It's kind of a gag song, but uh, it, it, there's something behind it. Yeah, I was going to say, I only know one other pizza-themed rock album actually it's a whole album uh horse the band put on an ep called right. the pizza ep really and apparently they tasted a pizza so delicious they had to write an album about it. <laughs> they well, were like stop the tour man it's pizza time it's no pizza underground by macaulay culkin i'll play that clearly influenced by the ninja turtles in some respects <laughs> they, no? they do a cover of ninja turtles on of course the album. They, yeah of course they that, do that you have to then there's pizza uh, time it's a haunted song about a haunted pizza. It's very, it's very right. peculiar. <laughs> the second track on the album is a song called Daddy Was a Communist. And this is a more staple song. And it's funny because all our parents escaped from communist persecution in the Czech Republic in the 60s. So my parents came here to start a new life, and this is where I was born. We were kind of doing these thematic songs. So again, my cousin, Paul Latex, the lyricist, decided to come up with, again, another kind of gag song, Daddy Was a Communist, and his love for his secret agent, double agent, communist dad, which is, again, just kind of like a theoretical kind of concept. And if our parents, let's just say, if our parents ever heard the titles of these songs, they'd kick our asses knowing what they ran from.
dig it. Cool. That it had a little hemicycle. <laughs> it's really funny. My sister got married this weekend, like I said, and the she made us, the three members of the band, get together in a circle and mime karaoke to that song in front of her entire wedding party. It was so embarrassing. But we actually did it. That's wow. <laughs> I guess it's a wedding. You have to do whatever the bride It's my kid's sister. Whatever she yeah. wants, she got. We have such a limited connection to our past, and we try to hold on to it. It depends on how your parents are, how much of the their culture they decided to bring over, you know, how much they decided to reject, because there's obviously a reason why they left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I totally relate into the song in the same way, where it's like, you're like, yeah, if your parents were hearing this, you're like, yeah, don't write a song about exactly. that dad being a communist and you know, people get killed for that kind of stuff. Right. You know, but for but for us in this generation we're like, well no, that's not I'm just, you know, we're, we're relating in different ways. It's the same idea that you can relate to horrible events and tragedies that happened in the past because the only connection you might have to that culture is that tragedy. Yeah, that's it. And it's kind of like, you know, communism was a big piece of lore in our youth and uh you know i remember i had another uncle down in florida and he had a huge like fuck communism banner that he would like a tapestry used to have hanging in his house because you know they did some pretty horrible things you know my parents were, were my mom at least her side of the family were pretty well off they were kind of kind of this aristocratic background and they owned all this property all that shit got taken away by by the state the communist state you know like left them with hardly anything and my mom used to tell me stories that my grandmother would go out in the ledge there and like air out some old fur jackets and the people would call the state police and they would come and uh, ask, why do you have these possessions? And, you know, why do you have these things? And my mother, she has two sisters, that these three daughters, they, they were born to my grandparents. And my grandfather was uh, an admiral in the, in the Czech Navy. And my grandmother was kind of like a socialite and she, they both spoke eight languages and they were just well to do, but they were kind of anti-communist and they had a liberal voice. And, um, somewhere in the, uh, the mid sixties before the Czech revolution or during the Czech revolution, they decided it was time to go. And, uh, there was a lot of kind of, uh, shit talking about my grandfather in the, in the papers. And so in the middle of the night, he literally gathered my mom and her two sisters and, um, actually one sister, the other one was away in, mm-hmm. in uh, Scotland, I know uh, Sweden studying, but uh, not there. <laughs> yeah, not there. And he took his whole family basically and told them to grab everything they could and, and threw them in a car and slipped out their building in the middle of the night and made their way to a German refugee camp. And, but not before getting held up by guns at the border and uh, threats. And they spent the next six months at a German refugee camp living in tents. And then eventually they made their way to Canada and then into America through an au pair program. And my mom worked for the Simon and Schuster family, like being a nanny for that family and yeah, whatever you could. It been, but because it was probably one of the best decisions they ever made. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. Tell us about the song I'm Not You on the B-side. Musically, this is one of my favorite songs on the album, and uh, it was written by me and Joe Latex uh, for the guitar and the bass, and the song is about, again, punk rock, but uh, Paul Latex, the singer's pure hatred for hippie culture. Oh boy! Yeah. So we've we've gone through Central America, <laughs> communism, and now hippies. Yes, we're hitting all the hot button topics. Yeah, Paul was never a fan of like that whole culture, like kind of the tie dye, the flip floss, which I'm wearing right now, all that long haired kind of nasty stuff. I remember when we were on tour, Paul would like we. I remember we stayed at a hippie's house once, and while we weren't looking, he took his bong and peed in it, and and le- left it there, and we were yelled at him so much. You know, he he really didn't like that. And then Jerry Garcia died, so. That this is this song kind of touches on the death of Jerry Garcia and Paul's love for the event and all these kind of things. So you, I'll let the song play for itself. But musically, I really dig it. Lyrically, it's again like everything else on the album. It's silly. We don't need your past. We don't want to come back. We don't need your time. 
disarm me to get the tie yellow ribbon. And Jerry Garcia thought he's the messiah? I'm grateful he's dead. Why leave your life in a drug cult like pussy whip sheep? Well, you know they're out in California sitting there counting all their money, laughing at all the sheep. Thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I'm not gay. So there. <laughs> How many hippies are left? Well, they're around, man. Dude, Fish is playing like 17 nights in a row at Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden. Some of my friends are playing in that band with them. It's crazy. Even my dad is like, oh, blah, hippies are the worst. And he was like right after that. Right, you know, he was right. all about like, oh, 70s rock, man. And he really, really hated disco. Right. He had all the disco suck shirts. That's so funny. And he's one of those guys with a giant fro and tight pants. Oh, I hate disco. Oh, that's you know? hilarious. Yeah, my buddy uh, Peter Shapiro, who's the owner of Brooklyn Bowl, he was the promoter for the three Grateful Dead cities that they did, or two, San Francisco and, uh, and Chicago. Those were massively sold-out shows, you know, the, the Farewell Dead shows. There are people out there do it. My dad has actually been to 56 Grateful Dead shows. Wow. And he's yet one of those guys. he has the audacity to be like, oh, that hippie crap. Because he's not a hippie guy. <laughs> he's just a guy who just... Who just likes to uh, smoke a bit, you know? I'm a product. Uh, I got to cool. <laughs> I'm a product of the '60s. I don't like the '60s products. <laughs> well, you know what? I, yeah, I think there was there was all the hippies, and then there was all the guys who were just heads that were just there, like, oh yeah, you know, like I'll wear a colorful shirt yeah. if it covers my body. I like the drugs that they <laughs> offer, but I don't like the people who take the drugs. Was your dad at Woodstock or no? Um, my dad he, almost was at Woodstock. Uh, he, my father, wasn't. He was a little too young. Yeah, my father was 18, but got sick and infamously uh, had to. He was there in the area that Woodstock was, but right, but had to uh, call out sick and was not able to go and complete the hippie trifecta. I think right my, I think my aunt was there. That's cool. I have a I have like an old poster from the old the original Woodstock. I want to say that's cool. We have time for one more song, and it's one that you are uh, especially proud of in yes. some respects, just because I think it's more prescient than anything. <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite song of the album. This song actually had its own single called uh, "What's the Name of the the Song?" It's called "I Killed the President," mm. and this is probably the best song we've ever written, and I'm most proud of it. And uh, it's a departure from the other stuff on the album, and it just kind of came together one day in the rehearsal studio. It's right after the song we just played, so it'll work out perfectly. Yep. Okay, I was about to say, because we had to prep it, but good thing to know that it's right coming up. This song is about the assassination of JFK. I see. And that's all you need to know. So again, guys, this is Latex Generation with I Killed the President right here. Lost and Around, Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs> The school book depository, grass and no blue skies. Jackie is looking at me.
political punk. <laughs> political pop punk. Political pop punk from the 90s. Hey, dude. Two dudes in the grassy knoll, bro. Let's put it out there. Two shots, no regrets. <laughs> Paul, he, he went to school at UMass, and he was so turned off by the super love for JFK up in Massachusetts, where he's like a patron saint up there. So he just want, he was just an angry like punk re, punky kid, and he wanted to come back and write lyrics like that. So he wrote those parts. Joe Latex wrote those great leads you hear at the end, where he's just kind of wailing at the end. It's so good. But I, I was the one writing like kind of the the chord progression and, and the bass progression there, and it all kind of came together. It's my favorite song on the album. We should also note that you may have heard a little bit of a key change there. That was not a key change. That was most certainly a little magnet disturbance. The tape warped. Yes. Um, so luckily the tape did not get eaten uh, by it, my uh, Ion Tape Express player. It warped in the jungles of the Philippines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what a story. If people want to hear the whole album, they can just not in the analog variety on iTunes. Correct. They should go to iTunes and just type in Latex Generation. We've got special editions of this album that were actually kind of remastered and touched up, and then the other album, which is, again, a little different, but uh, to me, a more, a more favorite album. It's called Boys Rock. It's all one That's word. That's the second one you guys put mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. com will kind of give you a retrospective uh, website, but if you really want to learn about the band, you can go to Wikipedia and type in Latex Generation. There's a massive entry there for that. You have your show on RadioNope.com, uh, live from the Barrage. The barrage, every, yep. Live from the Barrage. I know I can pronounce Barrage. Words. That shows like five dudes who sit around this converted garage turned bar turned pirate radio station. So we used to be a punk band and now we're just doing podcasts. Exactly. <laughs> and those guys were in there, other bands. They're in a band called like, The Rejects and Risk. They're in a band called Risk Reward. They record a lot with Steve Albini and stuff. And sure. So, uh, we, you know, we do that every Friday night. And we It's a three hour show on Radio Nope. That's a long show. Yeah, man. But what we do is like this. The first hour is just shooting the shit. Old friends for 25 years, catching up for the week. The second hour is a guest. And over the last five years, we've had the likes of, uh, I don't know, Billy Bragg, uh, Steve Albini, Mike Watt, Pussy Riot, uh, Ramones, Cheap Trick. They all call in. Ah. And it'll be fun. We'll feature them for the hour. And then the last hour, I'm actually the news reader, and I do this thing called the TRNN Tommy Rockstar News Report. And I'll do kind of gag news, and they'll bust on it. And it's a big show. We'll do a game at the end. It's fun. Clearly, you have... Uh, accomplished so much in music and to be able to be uh, inclusive uh, rather than the what it seemed like you were doing with the band which was being really exclusive right exactly fuck hippies fuck the president fuck uh, Central Americans you're cool (laughs) (laughs) exactly we're just paying it back my friend paying it back Um, we have to get out of here so uh, Tommy Rockstar you can find him all over uh, Twitter and Facebook everywhere Mm -hmm. everywhere you can find this guy he's a true gentleman and a scholar clearly and we're grateful that you're here with us uh, for this week of Lost and Rewound. Thank you so much, guys. It was a true pleasure. You guys are great, and you do a great show. Oh, Thank you so much, so much Tommy. Through, man. Thank you so much. And again, thanks all to our listeners. Yes. And tune in again next week, guys, 3 p.m. on Thursday. See you next week. Maybe it was just my dad's fax machine, but it always printed out with brown ink. What? Never black ink. It was always brown ink. That was just your dad's fax.
God damn it, Dad. That doo-doo facts. <laughs> <laughs> what you know about doo-doo facts? What you know about that? Doo-doofacts.com. All the prices of inkjet is just so expensive nowadays. It's just doo-doo right in the facts, baby. 